When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again. In today's episode, there's so much wisdom and knowledge that's dropped. There's a couple of things that I learned early in my entrepreneur career, and I want to share those with you because I believe that this really going to set the precedent of how this episode will go. But number one, information is powerless without applied action. Again, let me say that information is powerless without applied action. You can have all of the information in the world, but if you don't put action behind it, you'll never get to where you're trying to go. And the second thing is before you can level up your skill set, You have to level up your mindset. I'll say that one again as well. Before you can level up your skill set, you have to level up your mindset. Well, on today's episode, we have the great, the man and my guy, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Dennis Kimbrough is, he's wrote five books. He's a business coach. He's also one of the writing partners of the prestigious Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And he helped to author Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice, which is how I first came across his work. And since then, I've been following him ever since. And I'm sure in this episode, he is going to inspire you to be able to live beyond your wildest imagination, but also be able to take action behind it. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. I'm in my study and right over there with, okay, so you're in my study. I wish I could show it to you. Uh, and I have two parts. You can see the door closed back there. And back there, I got my personal library, just rows and rows and rows and rows of books. But here at my computer, I got about about 40 books that had a profound impact on my life. Hmm. Okay. Got my mother's Bible. I got a copy of the Underground Railroad. I got Marion Williamson. I got all of Martin Luther King's books. You're looking at Simon Sinek. You're looking at Malcolm Gladwell, Wayne Dyer, and the like. And then over there, I got the last 100 pages in the Napoleon Hill. Okay, I go on to say all that. By far, to me, his best book is The Master Key to Riches. Mm. That was two books before he, before he wrapped it up. Why The Master Key of Riches? Because he gives his personal definition of what is success. So many folks throw a dollar figure on success. And Casanova, you can't do that. It's not how much, it's not how big, it's not how large, it's not how great, it's not how rich. It's how many lives did you touch? And that's not me, that's Nelson Mandela. He picked up on that. Mm. Nelson Mandela, about to make his transition, one more interview, young journalist. Sure, what do you you want to know? Mr. Mandela, what is the purpose of life? And Mandela says, the only reason, the only way that I can answer the purpose of life is to be Socratic and ask you two questions. 
He says, sure, what is it? He said, question number one, have you moved from fear to fearless? And then number two, have you closed the gap between the potential and the performance? Mm. Okay. So he does that in the master key to riches. Hill talks about that. But anywho, going back to 1950 Chicago, he's giving a presentation. After his presentation, Hill opens it up for Q&A. And a woman asks a question. 1957 Chicago. And she says, uh, Dr. Hill, these principles that you espouse, these principles that you highlight, they work for anybody regards to race, creed, and color. And Hill said, what do you mean anybody race, creed, and color? He said, women, male, didn't call black back then, black, white, blah, blah, blah. And Hill responds, he says, let's get one thing straight. 1957 Chicago. He says, there's no such thing as race. He was a different breed of animal, and he focuses on the big four. And what are the big four? Mindset, soul set, heart set, health set. And that's it. And you've heard this before. I mean, what is your life, Casanova? Your life is all that you can imagine, all that you can see. We're not in this world to set it right. We're in this world to see it rightly. Big difference. Big difference. I want to tell you, listeners out there, there's only two books that you really need. You go to the top B schools across the country and I always make sure that my students read it and they will read it this year. Okay, number one, Country of the Blind. You can country go online, of the blind. Country of the Blind. Go online, H.G. Wells. You can read it online. As a matter of fact, both books you can read online. You don't even have to purchase, but if you're like me, you want your own copy so you can highlight notes in the margin and the like. Country of the Blind by H.G. Wells talks about sight. Most dangerous individual in the world is a man with no sight but no vision. No vision, right. And you see that right now. You see that right now. No, I'm not getting into politics. I tell people all the time, I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative. I'm a realist. I know what works and what doesn't. And what works, those men and women who have won most in life, have relied mostly on themselves. What does the Bible say, Casanova? The Bible says, work out your own salvation. So what in the world does that mean? It means you got all the power. I gave you all the tools. You go solve the problem. Why does thou criest unto me? You go solve the problem. Here it is. And you've already solved the problem. Why? Because you're here. Dr. Kimber, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, so why weren't you born the year I was born in 1950? The world wasn't ready for you. Just the fact that you are here, the stop signs have been ruined, the lights go from, from red to green. Hey, man, this is your time to go up on the rooftop and shout to the world, I'm here. This is what I've been sent to do. So work out your own salvation. So mindset. Everything occurs to you twice in life, the inner, the outer, the thought, the thing, the mental, the physical. And those men and women who have won mostly in life have relied mostly on themselves. So that is the bottom line. And what Stephen Covey talks about, make sure you keep the first thing the first thing. That's where your focus has got to be. Because we live in a society right now that is begging for your attention. Right. Because that's the number one rule of marketing. When you take any marketing class, number one, the first, the first class in principles of marketing, what is it? Make your eyeballs move. Mm. That's the job of any marketeer. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like that. 
Now this, uh, uh, yeah, you got more of this. This I like. So the reason why this is the absolute best time, and I said it on George Frazier's uh, podcast, is because you got the best thinkers, the best influences, the best game changers, the best STEM minds, whatever, all focused on one or two problems. And what are those one or two problems? Number one, the pandemic, and number two, racial unrest. And that's not me. That's Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell says any problem can be solved if only enough people care. And when he said any problem, well, damn it, he meant any problem. Right. The only reason why you have a problem is because you think you got a problem. You really don't have a problem. <laughs> it's the thought that you think you got a problem. And if you've got to think that you've got a problem, go find enough people who care. And that is the bottom line. Right now, you have enough people who care. This is my third pandemic, man. This is the third time I've been through this. I can show you right there in my arm when I got my polio injection. I was about, what, five, six years old. My mother takes me down to the Board of Health right there in New Jersey, and Jersey City, and all I can remember, kids crying and all these guys walking around with white coats, man. And I got popped. So that's number one, the polio. And, and, when, and when you think of that, you've got to think of Jonas Salk. You got to go online and read about Jonas Salk. You got, okay, so right now you got countries, you got Putin on one side, you got Trump on the other side, just throwing money in the pharmaceutical companies. This is almost like a race who can get the first vaccine because they're going to be banked like Hank. Right. Well, Jonas Salk was a mind changer, man. He was a mind changer. When he came up with the vaccine for polio, they said, Dr. Salk, man, you're going to be rich and everything. He says, no. He says, this vaccine belongs to the people. Hmm. Can you imagine that? So that's number one. I get my polio. Couple of couple of years, here comes pandemic number two. What? It was uh, tuberculosis. And back then, parents had a choice. You could take your kid down to the Board of Health to be inoculated, or we will come to the public school and inoculate him in school. I got inoculated in school. They took me out of class, marched me down to the nurse's office, got popped <laughs> class man so this is number three now why do i say that do you really believe we needed a vaccine if you think you needed one go get it that, that's where you are in your thinking if you got a headache and you think you need an aspirin by all means take the aspirin i've been a runner my entire life more than 35 years of running marathons half marathons 10ks blah 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 Heaviest is one of the heaviest I've ever weighed in my life, and I'm staying right here. It looks like until I decide to drop a little, got on the scale this morning, 215, blah, blah, blah. But when I ran, I wasn't an ounce over 175. So what happened? I'm 35 years of running, uh, Casanova. I tore my knees up. I mean, my knees are gone. Had in 2010, 10 years ago, I had my first knee replacement. Five years later, I had my second uh, knee replacement. But the bottom line is, if you're created in his image, in his image, and this is the good news, man. This, this is the absolute good news. We need to get on our knees every day and thank God we're created in his image. He's not created in ours. Mm. Dr. Kimber, what in the world are you talking about? And you're still talking about mindset. Well, look at the World Health Organization. Go to their website. They track the top 10,000 diseases on the planet. The World Health Organization, top to the go to CDC, they track the top 400. So between those two institutes of health on a daily basis, they, they track 
the top 10,400 diseases. And not one was created by God. Mm. Not one. Now, am I saying they don't exist? No. Where do they exist? They just don't mind. And until we get to that point of working out our own salvation, you do whatever you got to do. If I wake up in the morning, my eyes are bloodshot, I'm not going anywhere until I pop some visine. Mm. I got to be able, I can, I'm not going to run anymore, but I like to walk. I walk my five miles. I'm getting my knees replaced. But sooner or later, sooner or later, you, me, and everybody listening to this podcast, we're all going to leave this world. Not by dying but by knowing the truth. Mm. And what is, and what is the truth? That's what I was going to ask. As far as you can see. As far mm. as you can see. I share that with you. You read Hill's 16 books, and it's a big difference. The, the, the way, what he's talking about, what he's writing in Law of Success, all the way to the last 100 pages that I was given, because he was becoming more and more and more and more and more metaphysical. Why do you there's so much to unpack there? And that's why, again, I I could not afford to interrupt you because you were giving so much wisdom. Let me ask. First thing, you said a couple of things that I do want you to tap into a little bit more. First off, you talked about going from fear or you talked about going from living in fear to fearless. How does someone do that? Because I think right now that is very, very relevant. And and it it is enough to just know. Or let me ask this. Can someone just make that choice or is there something that you have to put in place every single day? Is it all in the mind is what I'm saying? Whatever you put in place every single day is going to reinforce that one choice. It is a choice. And yes, you can do that. And how can you do that, Casanova? If your why is big enough. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the Bible, the Bible says man cannot live by bread alone. In other words, I can give you all the money in the world. I can give you whatever you want, and you could still hunger for something else in life. And we see it with a lot of the affluent, the lot of wealthy. Man, he had everything. Why the world did he blow his brains out? Man, she had everything. Man, why did she hang herself in a closet? But no, she didn't have everything. And again, going back to Hill, it's not how much, how great, what is it? Well, damn it, it's peace of mind. And what is peace of mind? The absence of all negative emotions. So to answer your question, yes, if you have a why. Now, I don't know how long it's going to take you to get a why. I don't know what's going to give you a why. And I don't know how it's going to give you a why. But if you need a why, and what is motivation? Motivation starts with the next step. What, what is motivation? Motivation is not inspiration. It's not rah-rah. It's whatever that's going to get you to Take the next step. Motivation is short for momentum. Mm. Oh, man, here they come. They just signed a step to pass, and they just changed the momentum. How do we offset that momentum? We're on defense now. Take the next step. Take the next step. I don't know what it's going to take, but if your why is big enough, you know, what I do in my class, first day of class, I give them all my students an index card, the number two fence. Before I give the syllabus or anything else, Let's come what are we gonna put on this card? I want you to put your story on this card. Everybody got story. Everybody see the first thing, the first thing you gave me your story. I didn't even have to ask for your story. 
You told me all the obstacles that you had to overcome. You, you told me you couldn't find your father with a roadmap raised by your mother and your grandmother, that you were below zero on the meter. But you gave me the story. Now, going back to the why, you can use that story for momentum or you can use that story on oh, the reason why I can't do this and can't do that. As an anchor. I tell my students, you only get one chance to use that story on why you did not succeed in my class. <laughs> so if they bomb a test or they're late on an assignment or I don't allow them in the class because I don't like the way they're dressed or they're coming to that, you only get what I tell them. Go and use your story because this is it. <laughs> this is it because you're going to give me the story and I'm going to throw it in the trash. Mm. And that's what, we, that, that's what we need to see about past generations of African-Americans. I love all these folks. you got a whole bunch of, like I said, I'm not liberal, I'm not conservative, but I love all these conservative, black conservatives right now who, and I just say, man, you can say whatever you want to say. You can take any political stance that you want to take, but Casanova, don't you ever forget. Somebody survived for you. Mm. If you're African-American right now, all you got to do is go back to one past generation and somebody survived for you. To take the stance that you have right now, wow. somebody survived. Someone had to put up right. with the indecency, tolerate the inequities, look past the injustice, turn it cheek to the degradation, put up with all the nonsense and the chaos, you know, dust themselves off when they've been thrown under the bus just for you. Wow. That, that's a powerful, you know, it's a powerful pretext. So you can use it, but you've got to come up with a why. Why are you doing that? Richard Branson, he said it all. A couple of years ago, Branson gave up the reins of uh, Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Music. He was retiring, passing the baton on to his children. And a journalist asked him, he said, Mr. Branson, now that you've given up the day-to-day -day affairs to your children, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be judged? And Branson said, well, I don't like judging people, and I'm certainly not in the judging business. But if you must judge me, don't judge me by anything that I've built here at Virgin Atlantic or Virgin Music. Judge me by the character and integrity of my children. Mm. Casanova, what did I just expose to your little head, my, your brain, my brother? Level five leadership. And that's what you seek in life. And you can lead without a title. You don't have the degrees, as I say, in the wealth choice. The wealthy keep score, excuse me, the middle class keeps score by degrees and titles. The poor keep score by cars and clothes. But the wealthy, they keep score by the bank account. So you can judge 50 million different ways, man. But the bottom line is your character and your integrity is a sacred trust. And you defend it at all costs. Yeah, no, I love that. One of the stories that I heard early on in my real in my real estate career, and I tell this story all the time when I'm speaking, but it was said that basically Warren Buffett was on a panel one day and someone asked Warren and they said, Warren, how do you know or how did you know uh, when you've truly when you were truly successful in life? And Warren said, you'll never know when you're truly successful until you die. And so I guess for Warren, he's always been looked at as an atheist, right? He's just more of a realist. He doesn't really talk about afterlife 
God, all those things. And I've never had that conversation with him. So I don't mm-hmm. really know. But he said, you'll never truly know until you die. And people are like, oh, my God, Warren's talking about afterlife. And he said, you'll never know until you die and you see how many people come to your funeral. He said, but more importantly, you'll never really know how truly successful you've been until you see how many of those people cry at your funeral, because those are the people who you truly touch their lives. And and when I heard that, I was like, man, like that's that's something that's always been huge, especially in the black community is because a lot of the times we live that same story that we tell ourselves is I never got it. So when I get it, ain't nobody going to get it from me. So then what happens? We go down the generations and we never teach that level five leadership of just like what you were talking about, because we have that story that we tell ourselves. And so it's so important that people hear that and they understand, yes, in the beginning, you're building your own foundation, but at the end, it has to become a switch earlier rather than later that now it's no longer about the the back of the jersey. It's more about the front of the jersey. And what that means is that I'm building a legacy for those who will come after me. Or even if I don't live to have my own kids, my brothers or my sisters or my nieces or my nephews or even my parents that can live that on. And I think that that's what I just heard from you. And so I love it because it feels like that you're talking about something that I already believe in my heart and whether I needed it or not, it's an amazing affirmation to hear, to know that the way that I've been trying to do it is one that's profound. And obviously you've been doing this for over 40 years. I like Warren Buffett. He's he's emblematic of uh, the corporate arena in, in general. And I'm an old corporate hack. I was the first black male in the rotational program of Texas Instruments when uh, I got out of my undergraduate degree in 72, 73. I was the first black male in the rotational program for Smith Klein and French Pharmaceutical. In the corporate arena, when you start talking about love, they freak out. Mm. You mentioned the word love in the corporate arena, they freak out. But the bottom line is, and I can, I can get 100 people at Casanova and I could say, Okay, if you were describing God, what, what's the one word that you would use? And 95% would say love, okay? But the bottom line is we see love, but we see the value of love all the time. If you're an entrepreneur and you love your customers, guess what? You get more customers. Right. If you're a teacher and you love your students, you're going to be teacher of the year. If you're an employee and you love your coworkers, you're going to be manager in no time. If you're an employee and you love your job, you get in the parking space closest to the building. So, and what, what is love? Love is empathy, man. Love is caring. But Warren Buffett is true, and he got that from the, again, going back to the top business school. You go to Harvard and you declare yourself as a business major, one of the first assignments you'll ever be given is to write your own obituary. Hmm. You go to the Stern School of Business at NYU, and one of the first assignments they give you is write your own eulogy. And they tell you when you die, make sure that your obituary is on the pages of the New York Times. Why? Because only people who are noteworthy get their obituary in the pages of the New York Times. But Buffett is right. The average, the average funeral in the United States is 270 people strong. So anything over 270 people, yeah, you touched a lot of lines. But again, like I said, it isn't how much, it isn't how big, it isn't how rich, it isn't how wealthy, it's progress. That is the key. Are you making progress? Right. Are you making progress in every area of your life? Are you making progress? Like I said, we talk about mindset. What's next? Soul set. 
pump the brakes on ego, man. Let's, let's push ego to the side. And let's talk about we instead of me. And that's what this country is going through right now. It's no secret. This country's been in decline. But now it's really being in decline. People are really recognizing for the last year, last 18 months, last 20, 20 months. Man, is this bad boy coming apart at the seams? Why? Because ego, <laughs> ego is going off the meters. And I tell my students, hey, well, Dr. Kimball, it seems like there's more people who hate than love. And I say, no, that's not true. You got more people who love than hate. So it just seems that there's more hate. No, those who hate Casanova, they hate with a conviction. Mm. And what is conviction? Conviction is a force multiplier. The only reason why you're successful in real estate, you probably had the real estate opportunity for weeks, for months, and you know, for years, and you never moved on it. But now lately you moved on it. Conviction. Right. And we see it in sports every time. Those folks take a Kobe Bryant, you take a LeBron James, you take a Beyonce, you take a Michael Jordan. Initially, they're hungry. Man, they got a dream and they're hungry and nothing is going to stop them. And then when they reach their goals, unlike other folks who get hungry and reach a goal and you never hear from them, they maintain that hunger and then that leads to dominance. And that comes from having a big enough why. That's right. Once, once they hit their goals and objectives and they got the same hunger, well, damn it, they dominate. Mm. And see, conviction, once you're convicted and you, at least you, you hitting your goals and objectives, that leads to the passionate, committed mind, Napoleon Hill. And what does Napoleon Hill say about the passionate, committed mind? It can never be defeated. Never be defeated. I, I definitely agree. Let me ask, how big is exposure in your world, because I feel like for a lot of people right now, especially in the black community, a lot of the reasons why we don't take a lot of those risks, why we're not really to get uncomfortable, things like that is because we've never been exposed to it on a level from somebody who we feel like we can trust. It was the first time that I got exposed. It was through the Rich Dad Poor Dad. First time I got exposed to mindset was through Thinking Grow Rich, a black choice. Do you feel like it's because we don't get exposed in the right way? The, the reason why we don't actually get out there and become more fearless? Casanova, you've got to look at the historical context. If you're talking to a race for 400 years, that's brain speed out. And 250 of those 400 years, it was absolutely, positively, totally against the law for you to acquire wealth. So what in the, what in the world do you think is going to happen, man? If I take a knife and I stab you in the back and I puncture your back and, and, and put that knife in your back nine inches, and then I pull it out six inches, three inches of that blade is still in your back. You can't begin to heal until, until I take the knife completely out and you go ahead and cover the wound. They haven't completely taken the knife out. The thing about, and if, if we got to talk just ever so briefly about reparations, because people, they, they got crazy different 50 million thoughts about reparations is spiritual. Reparations was invented by the Quakers. And reparation, there are two important parts to the context of reparations. Reparations is a spiritual act that requires two statements. Forget doling and everybody's going to get a check or forget now we're, we're going to get so many types of amenities and so many types of whatever to compensate for what we've been in life. No, there's only two things you need for reparations. Number one, you got to say, I'm sorry. Say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Casanova 
while you had your back turned and you had to go up and use the restroom, I went into the kitchen of your house and there was that last cookie in the cookie jar and I took it. I'm sorry. But mm. number two, what is critically more important than number one, number one, you say, I'm sorry. And number two, you say, and I will never do that act again. Well, this country may have said sorry, but they never said they will never do that act again because you look at all the doctrine, you look at all the obstacles, you look at all the roadblocks that came after the Emancipation Proclamation. All right, so slavery ended, but you gave us Jim Crow, but slavery ended, but you gave us separate but equal. Slavery ended, damn it, you gave us the black codes. Slavery ended, man, what's the deal with the Tuskegee experiment, man? Slavery ended, man, Brown versus Board of Education. <laughs> Slavery ended, man, what's up with mass incarceration, man? Slavery ended, man, this bullshit called redlining, man? Slavery ended, now who came up with subprime loans? Slavery ended, God. So when you talk about exposure, yes, right now, what we need, we need financial literacy. Right. We need financial literacy. But there are two sides, what you call recognition and being exposed. When you look at buying habits, because going back to marketing, I talked to one of my marketing professors, there are five to seven different buying emotions. And the buying motion, another one, the hot button for Black America is recognition. Hmm. And they're good and there's positives and, you know, negatives when it comes to recognition. And Casanova, you can always tell when a marketeer is using recognition to get to Black America. You can just close your eyes and you can just hear the words that are being used. Be the first on your block. Be the talk of the neighborhood. Be hmm. the envy of the neighborhood. If you don't move now... You won't be able to, what are the hot buttons when they use for white males? What am I, white males want security. That's why they're like, those arms are always full. Oh, mm. and just very, I'm trying to stay secure. The barriers are all up. And what are the hot buttons? Close your eyes and just listen to the words that they use. Keep your family safe. Keep your finances safe and secure. Mm. You're in good hands. It, it's, yeah. um, wow. You got you got to be careful, but that that is the pretext. So number one is financial literacy. Number two is restoration of the black male. Number three, there are a whole subset that we have to do. But going back to 1897, and I tell people all the time, I'm a Johnny come lately, man. 1897, your most prolific scholar, W.B. Du Bois, wrote that book called The Negro in Business. And two profound quotes in that book. Number one, the man or woman who won't control his or her finances won't control anything else. And number two, nothing ever will occur, nothing positive will ever occur in a community that fails to circulate its dollars. That's the track that we have to run on. Is it difficult? Yes, but anything, any problem can be overcome. 
Wow. Man, that, there's so much that I never thought about those words, those key words. And, and I think that's the power of having a mentor, right? Because you said, I just got done talking to my professor and he talks about those words. And now, of course, anybody who's watching, listening, and I know myself, next time, next commercial that I hear, whether it's a big, especially with insurance companies, they use those types of words all the time. They're playing on it. And I've never, being honest, I just, I, I was never even exposed to this. So me now knowing I'm able to decipher who are they really talking into. But I think that financial literacy, just like you said, is so critical for us. Now, for a lot of us, we have a lot of debt, right? Are you a proponent of paying off debt first or starting to invest first and using whatever that capital cash flow is to then pay down your debt? Which do you feel is- Well, W. Clement Stone gave me a track to run on when he was coaching me as I was writing this book. And seven years, I caught hell financially, man. And everybody knows my story. I got behind on my mortgage. I was more than five months behind on my mortgage. My wife, me and my wife, we just knew we lost this house. But right at the cross. The same house you're living in now? Same house we're living in now. Wow. Got more than five months behind. And uh, I was coming down to the home stretch. And when I finished the book and threw it out there, and uh, what was the turning point? Was Success Magazine caught wind about what I was doing, and Scott DeGarmo, who was the uh, senior editor at the time, he contacted me and he wanted a series of articles. And un unknowingly, show you how naive I was, I said, "Scott, here, take the manuscript. Can you imagine this? Here's the manuscript of the book. I'm gonna give it to Success Magazine. Take anything that you want." He said, "No, Dennis, we, we like your writing style. Write us about three articles." Blah blah blah. Well, one of the articles that I wrote. It was in one of the magazines and Harvey McKay, who at the time was number one in terms of speaking, business speaking, this, that, and everything. He was in Dallas, Texas on a book tour, gets the magazine, jumps on a plane, and when the plane landed, he called me up blind. I picked up the phone. It was Good Friday. And he says, this uh, Dennis Kimbrough? I said, yes. Is this the young man who wrote that article? And I said, yes. He said, um, I'm fascinated about this book, Blacks Are Growing Rich. Do you have a publisher? And I said, no. He said, do you have an agent? And I said, no. And he said, I'll tell you what, if this book thinks you know, is what I think it is, I think we can do business together, but you got to promise me that you won't tell anybody about this conversation for 48 hours if you would overnight the manuscript to me. And if I like it, I'll share it with my agent and you never know but at least give me 48 hours before you tell anybody. I said, okay. And I hung up the phone, Casanova, and I told my wife, this guy just called me up. He said, 48 hours. I said, I know he's not going to call me in 48 hours because 48 hours is Easter Sunday. And so sure enough, I followed through, sent an express mail. He got it, three o'clock Easter Sunday. He called me up. He was bouncing off the ceiling. He said, young man, do you know what you have written? And I said, I guess so. I, I, I think it would do well. He said, do well. He said, I just shared it with my agent. Can you fly to Minneapolis and blah, 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 and I signed the deal. And they took the manuscript that had countless rejections and threw it out to the top 12 publishing houses in the world. And they started bidding on it. And the floor bid just to get invited in the room, just to be invited was six figures. Hmm. And so my lifestyle went from from here to there. 
But again, it's, it's not about all that. And I still went through that. And let me tell you another story, Casanova. Yeah. Okay. So he was my agent for what, more than 20, 25 years. And then he got out of the business. He didn't want to do books anymore. He just wanted to do movies. He wanted to represent entertainers. And so me and Harvey McKay and everybody else, we had to go find a new agent. Now, this will blow you away. So I don't know if you're familiar with my fifth book, The Wealth Choice. Yeah. I had finished it, all right? And I'm ready, I'm ready to go. It's seven years, man. And I'm ready to go. And I had, I was looking at three agents and to go ahead. And I said, one agent's right there in New York. And I sent the manuscript and she sent back and she said, this isn't a good fit. And I said, why? She said, I don't have the slightest idea what this book is about. And I had grown by then, blah, blah, blah. I ain't Goodbye. Next. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. You never know. That's why it's 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 not your capability. Everybody's got capabilities. Right. You got capability, I got capability. It's your belief in your capabilities that makes the difference. That's all the difference in the world. Everybody is capable. But those that we call successful, those that we, you know, are enamored with, those that we want to emulate and we look up to, they believe in their capabilities. That is the only difference. So I went on to say that. So there I am. And the book went off the chart and this, that and everything. But the bottom line is that, yeah, we all have journeys and we all encounter highs and lows, ups and downs, fast and slows. And success, the bottom line of success, it's like a roller coaster. And people want to know when is the roller coaster in? Well, the roller coaster never ends until you get off the tracks. Hmm. So that's the bottom line. Not in this world to see it wrong. Like I said, we're in this world to see it. Wrong. And that's the part of soul set. I love it. it with your mind's eye because your physical eye will lie to you. No, for sure. And that's a, it, what it really I, I hear so much is there's that old ancient story, and I'm sure you probably know of the Kingsman and his horse. And it's basically who knows what's good or what's bad. And and I tell this story a lot. So I'm sure all of my, my followers, all of the people that's watching have probably heard a version of it. The Kingsman loses his horse because the son hops on the horse one day, takes off riding, horse bucks the son off, breaks his leg. Next day he comes back with a couple different stallions. The neighbor comes over, says, oh man, you got to be so excited. And he says, uh, what do you mean? And he says, well, now your stallions have came back and continuously the kings keep saying, ah, who knows what's good or what's bad. And so I think it goes back to one of your earlier points where you were talking about it's all in the mind. A lot mm -hmm. of the times we don't know what's good or what's bad. It's only the emotion that we attach to it. And Nipsey Hussle made so many references to this. And one of the, the things that I always love, Nipsey didn't say this, but when people ask me how I keep going, I always say wins and losses comes with being bosses, right? Mm -hmm. And we are all a boss of our own life. So it doesn't have to be a boss in a corporate uh, setting, but we are all a boss of our own life. And so if you can just understand that adversity builds character, so you'll never get to where you want to go. It would just be too boring. You would never stay on the track if there wasn't the up or the down, because eventually we're all human beings. So we'll just get bored. So you need that to keep pushing you. And I love it. And hey, what's up, Dream Builder? Have you been getting any value out of this episode? Would you like to get more exclusive content just like this delivered right to your inbox? 
If so, head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com and you can sign up for the email list and that will give you access to exclusive content and more interviews just like this that's going to be delivered only to our tribe. So head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. Let's get back to it. And so I wanted to hear the second part of that story of the wealth choice because that person says no. And it was, was it like the chip on your shoulder? It's all, I'm going to show you or was no, it? No, it wasn't. No, no, uh-uh. I, I, don't, I don't need that. And it was the same to show you how my mindset had changed over the years. Okay. So I'm working on thinking grow rich a black choice and I got finished the book, but I didn't have an agent and I didn't have a publisher and we were beyond in debt. So we're here in Atlanta. And my wife said, my wife and my mother said, well, if you can't find a job in Atlanta, why don't you come back up to New York, come, come back up to Jersey and this, that, and everything. And I said, I did. My mother gave me a plane ticket. I went up there, I spent three, maybe five days with her. And I was you know, going to search firms and this, that, and everything. I knew off of Fifth Avenue, I had sent the manuscript to an agent in New York. And I said, well, I'm looking for a job. Let me go by his office and maybe I can go ahead and talk to him blah, blah, blah. So I went completely, totally unannounced. And I knew that he had my manuscript. And I went to his office and I announced my name to his administrative assistant. And his administrative assistant said to me, let me see if he's in. So she walks back and she closed the door behind her. But the door cracked back open and I could hear everything. So she went back there and she said, there's a gentleman, blah, blah, blah. And I could hear the agent tell his administrative assistant, tell him I'm not in. And so she came, she comes back out and she said, I'm sorry, Mr. Kimber, but he must have slipped out for lunch. I said, no problem. And I walked out. At that particular time, it damn near put me on my knees. I was crying in my beer and I was ready to take my basketball, blah, blah, blah. But over the years, I had grown and I said, no problem, because it's not about me. Lessons learned. It's not about me. It just means bigger things are going to happen, this, that and everything. And that's a part of growth and development. There's a sign in my classroom that reads, if you don't read, if you don't study, if you don't grow, if you don't develop, if you don't go to the seminars, you don't go to the conferences, you don't go to the workshops, you don't read books, you don't take good notes, you don't sit in the first seat in the front row. Somebody else will. And the day you meet that other person, you lose. Mm. And life is about growth and development. Here we are. I've had a couple of seniors call me already. Dr. Kimbrough, man, I'm trying to find a job in the pandemic and this, that, and everything. And I said, you already got a job. And she said, I do. And I said, yeah, your job is continuous growth, personal, professional development. 24-7. 24-7. Not being superior, but being better today than you were yesterday. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, complete thy noble task. Many are called, but few are chosen. Right. Many are called, but few are chosen. What, well, what does that mean? Many are called, but few updated the resume. Many are called, but only a handful got a suit that fits. Many are called, but man, only one or two set the alarm clock. Many are called, but man, that was the only dude that filled out the application. Right. So, I mean, come on, my brother. Complete thy noble task. Do what you've been sent here to do. 
I love it. I, first thing that came to my mind when you said you already got a job, and he was like, "What's that? Your job is to find a job." Right? <laughs> 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 You're never without work. Right? <laughs> yeah, but came, but no, I absolutely. I think that most of the time we don't think about that. So many people didn't wake up. So many people have do not have even even a mentor. Do not have a Dr. Dennis Kimbrough to call. Do not know about podcasts and where they can find free resources to better their situation more than it was yesterday. There's so many people, just like you said, that don't realize that they are still chosen, even though mm-hmm. you woke up. And the fact that you, even you're driving to work or you just lost your job, but you can pop in that podcast and you could say, hey, I'm going to be exposed to something that's going to allow me to not go cry in my beard, as you said that you oh, did. Oh, without a doubt. Right? Without so a they doubt. Can keep on their path and they can understand that again, I'm still chosen. Maybe I wasn't chosen for that path. And that's the whole reason why it didn't happen for me. Cause you're a prime example of that. You took a lot of bumps. You took a lot of bruises, but then in the end, it all worked out for you because the path that you were supposed to be on, eventually, if you just keep pushing it, it it's like a maze, but you'll figure your way out. You might have to go back mm-hmm. two or three times, but you'll figure your way out. For it's, you, called, how- yeah, it's called pivot. Do the same thing that fortune 500 fortune 1000 companies do. When you look at the top fortune 1000 companies, what do they have in common? They at least are on the on the road from a standing start to where they are right now, they've at least pivoted twice. Right. And, and I pivoted. I started out working on the wealth, excuse me, on what makes the great great. And I was two years into that book when the Napoleon Hill Foundation contacted me. And when I flew up to New York, excuse me, flew up to uh, Chicago and had that meeting with W. Clement Stone. My wife waited out in the car for more than two hours, and, and I went back to the car, and she said, what did he say? He said, man, they want me to write this book. They want me to put my book down and write this book. That was a major pivot. Right. And Casanova, I went home. I told him, okay, yes, I'll do it. And I, I really didn't want to do it. W. Clement Stone said, young man, if you have any sense, you'll push that book aside and finish this. And so I said, well, I'll do it if you help me financially. I, I had to borrow money for the plane ticket. My wife is in the rental car. We don't have a dime between us. He could have easily reached into his lapel pocket, pulled out his checkbook and written me a seven, excuse me, a six-figure check. But he didn't do it. And he said to me, if you really want to find the reason, you know, while one person succeeds, while another fails, while one individual is rich and wealthy, while another is impoverished, it's in this laboratory that you must find. So he said, no, I'm not going to give you a dime because Andrew Carnegie didn't give Napoleon Hill a dime. Mm-hmm. So he said, but what I'm giving you is an opportunity. And so I went back and I went home and I didn't work on that book for nearly three months. I'm in my study and I'm still fine tuning what makes the great, great my wife comes in my study. And she says, have you started working on the other book? And I said, Pat, no, I'm not feeling it, man. I'm not. And she said, you better tell them something because they think you're back here in Atlanta working on their book. So I sat down and I wrote 90 pages. I thought it was pretty good. I put it in an envelope, overnight it, sent it to the Napoleon Hill Foundation. And they opened it up, they read it, and they threw it in the trash. I said, no problem. I'm a big boy. I can take it. This time, Casanova, I wrote 125 pages. Overnight it, they read it. Mm-hmm. Threw that in the trash. But after they did that the second time, I got a phone call from Mike Rick, who was the executive director. He says, uh, Dennis, 
He said, we received your writings. You're an excellent writer, but do us a big favor. And I said, sure, well, whatever. What do you want me to do? They said, take your doctorate, take the PhD, put it on a shelf. You won't need it for this assignment. I said, what do you mean? He said, we want you to write this book as if you're writing a letter to a friend. And so I went back, changed all the wording, this and what they were telling me to do, make it timeless. Make it where somebody can pick it up, you know, right before the pandemic, I'm walking off campus. I guess he had to be a freshman or something. I don't even know if he was a business major. He came up to me and he was holding a copy of the book. And he said, man, where has this book been, man? I've been reading this stuff. I've been telling my friends about it, man. I don't know if it was just published. I said, man, that book was older than you. And that was that's what they had in mind. Make it timeless. If someone read it 30 years ago, if someone read it now, there's food on every page. Don't have to start at the head of the chapter. You can go to the last page and there's food for you right there. And it all goes back to pivoting. And what is the definition of pivoting? It is maintaining your strategy, but altering your tactics. Mm. Maintain the strategy. The strategy, I want X million dollars by this particular date. I'm going to do ABC, XYZ, one, two, three. That's the strategy. Right. Nothing changed, but the tactics change and change the tactics regardless of what you got invested at that particular time. Mm. Some people, they can't do it because they said, man, I invested all this time and all this money after this, man, I can't change. Yes, you can change because I had invested everything that I owned into what makes the great, great. And they told me to put that on the back shelf. Man, I was giving them so much pushback and my wife pushback. They must be out of their mind, all the folks that I interviewed and this, that, and everything. But what changed, Casanova, if you looked at the 100 pages that Napoleon Hill, well, the foundation gave me, he only had three interviews in those 100 pages. None of them I could use. Hmm. He interviewed a gentleman by the name of James Brown, who at the time was a CEO, the founder of Crusader Life Insurance in Kansas City. He interviewed undersecretary to the United Nations, Ralph Bunch. He didn't, but he had he didn't even have chapter headings. He had about 100 pages, and if he ever kept hitting on the same rock, I use that as a chapter. He kept hitting on right mental attitude, okay? He kept hitting on not financial literacy, but mindset. Mm -hmm. I use that as a chapter. He kept hitting on, you know, persistence, and I use that as a chapter. And I just started... All the interviews I, I had, man, I had more than 125 interviews, man. So I could just take them and place them wherever I want. And I still have interviews that I had with individuals that I never used, man, mm. that I never used. And some interviews were Kathy Hughes of Radio One. Yeah. All right. She's a billionaire. I spent two days with her. Mm. Two days with a, with a billionaire, man. And I was thinking, okay, I got up this morning and I checked my emails and I got an email about uh, Kamala Harris. And it was like a, a sexual slur or something that someone had said about her. And what went through my mind this morning, Casanova, the interview twice, I met her twice, had a real nice interview with Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's widow. And the stories that she told me of what they went through when this man was breaking the color barrier that she didn't share with other folks, man. This is the bullshit. 
then. And not only was I thinking about Rachel Robinson, I met and I sat down and I basically had dinner with Billy Aaron, Hank Aaron's wife. Yeah. And she, how, she told me that 90 days out before he even broke Babe Ruth's record, they couldn't live in their house in Atlanta for mm. all the death threats. Right. Yeah. For 90, he was 90 days out. Man, okay, the baseball season opens up in April. Here she here it was in January and February. She couldn't even live in her home in Atlanta for the death threats. And so what was going through my mind, how much more nonsense, man, do we have to take, brother? Right. What did they want from us, man? Excellent. That's all about pivoting. That was all about pivoting. Yeah. But I get all these interviews and everything, and wherever I said, this would be seen, let me use this right here. It's an old man right there, man. And one of the benefits and perks of teaching in a lab is Atlanta's a hotbed. Right. And they call, you never know who you're going to meet. And so many times, Casanova, I'm walking off campus, I'm going to the parking deck, and literally the black excellence coming out of the parking deck that I'm meeting. How many times have I literally bumped into John Lewis? I mean, literally bumped into Bernice King, or you name them all, C.T. Vivian. Uh, I'm trying to think, man, all, 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 all the black leaders at one time or another I met or been in my class. We'll, Do you we'll still get wowed by it? Because yeah. I mean, you've been around, you've been around and been a superstar in your own for the last 20, 30 years. So when you sure. see someone, do you still get wowed by it? Do you still be like, wow, or, or is it? I don't, I don't get Google-eyed, but here's the thing. It's, it's about approval, mm-hmm. okay? And I learned a long time ago, Wayne Dyer and this, that. It's about approval. Everybody likes approval. I like approval. Casanova, I, I like walking down the street and what the student did to me. I was like, come on, man, can you autograph this, man? I like going through the airport and someone comes up to me and I don't know their name and say, man, your book changed my life, man. I can't begin to tell you times where I've had folks that will go to the bookstore at CAU, the CAU bookstore, and they'll go in the book section and they'll see my book and somebody behind the cash register, he teaches here. He does? Yeah, as a matter of fact, oh yeah, today's Tuesday. He has class, won't you, blah, blah. And, and they'll just come to my class unannounced can you order, walk into the class, can you autograph what I'm saying? That's why we do I'm that. I'm in my class. Look, look around, you see students? You're in my class, you're in the, I, right, I'm in the, I said, but no, no, no problem, man. No problem. The last time somebody did this will blow you away. He plays football for the Atlanta Falcons, Grady Jarrett. He's a defensive tackle. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm in class and one of my teaching assistants comes in and she pulls me over, pulls my coat. Dr. Kimbrough, there's a woman outside, and she says she's not going to leave until you come outside and autograph her. And I went out there, and it was Grady Jarrett's mother. And I said, oh, man, how are you doing, man? And I go back. Anyhow, so I'm in class. This is the last class of the spring semester before the pandemic. And who walks into my class completely, totally unannounced? And I knew exactly who he is. And, but my students didn't know who he was. And he walks in, he had aged, put on a little weight, gray hair, this, that, and everything. And as soon as I see him, I said, oh my God, I can't believe it. I said, come on up, man. You're officially teaching class, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. So he comes up to the front of the class and I said to my students, I said, who is this gentleman? And they're looking around and they don't, I said, you do know him. I said, when I was your age, 
his poster was in my dorm room, you know, by my bed. They still looking around. And then I said, on the count of three, I said to my guest, I want you to strike the pose. I go one, two, three. And his head bound, and he puts up the black power. It was John Carlos. Huh. 1968 Summer Olympic Games. And as soon as he did that, we call him blah, blah, blah. And they did, oh my God. It is a year, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, John, I said, uh, man, thanks for coming. Thanks for dropping in. Can we share a few words to my kids? And he spoke, and then he opened up the Q&A. This will blow you away, Casanova. So one of my students says, um, you're talking about mentors. And he says, um, do you mentor anybody? And he says, yeah, I mentor folks. As a matter of fact, my number one mentor right now is Colin Kaepernick. And when he said that, yeah, they connected the dots because right. Colin Kaepernick is going through what he went through. He was odd man out and blacklisted and this, that, and the cold. Right. He's doing the same thing. And they said, oh, wow, yeah, I can see that, man. He said, yeah, I speak to Colin at least two or three times every day. I said, as a matter of fact, you know, he was from, Carlos is from uh, L.A. And he said, we spoke before I got on the plane, this, that, and everything. And then another student says, do you have a mentor? And this will blow you away. And he says, yes, I have a mentor. So who's your mentor? He said, Harry Belafonte. And at that point, I said, I asked, I said, why Harry Belafonte? He said, Harry Belafonte doesn't live too far from me. He lives out here in L.A. And he told me, he says, when the average actor, actress, and entertainer wakes up in the morning out here in Beverly Hills, the first thing he or she does is pick up the phone and calls their accountant to see how much money they have in the bank. Harry Belafonte says, as soon as he gets up in the morning, the first phone call he makes is either Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King. He said, now who is going to lead a more fulfilled life? That's the purpose of life. Wow. So let me ask you that same question. I know we're wrapping up here and this has been absolutely amazing. Everything that I hoped for. Do you, who is that first phone call that you make every day? That's a, that's a good question. And I have been around this individual more times and he probably, one of the reasons why I wrote The Wealth Choice, I, I knew I was going to write The Wealth Choice because I had all this data on millionaires, particularly those that I interviewed and stuff. But the gentleman who sent me over the top is Andy Young. And I've had so many opportunities to be with him. Here's a man who walked arm in arm, side by side with Martin Luther King. And to give you a backflap story, it was Andy Young years ago when I had first interview I had with him when I asked him who had the most profound impact on his, on his life. And I just knew Casanova, he was going to say, Dr. King, he did. He said, Benjamin Mays. And I said, the school teacher at Morehouse who became the president of Morehouse? Why Dr. Mays? Of all the people that you rubbed shoulders with, what was so magical about Benjamin Mays? And he told me, he said, because you can always see, you always knew a student who had Benjamin Mays as a professor at Morehouse, you can see them running across the quad to go to his class because he only had two rules in his classroom. Rule number one, Benjamin Mays would always correct your English. And the juniors and seniors would say, man, that's whack. Why is this guy correcting my English? And Dr. Mays would reply, would you rather have me correct your English or a prospective employer correct your English? And then rule number two, Benjamin Mays said, I don't care in the catalog. I don't care in the role book. I don't care on the syllabus that says class starts at one o'clock. If I get here at 1245, that door is closed. Mm. On time is late and early is on time and late is fired. And the first assignment 
that every student had to remember was that old poem of only just a minute, 60 seconds in it. Of course, a palm can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it. But I know that I must use it. I'll suffer if I lose it. Pay account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute of my life is in it. So he shared that the first interview I had with him, he was sharing all of it. But I, I've had so many countless interviews, but I got to share this. So yeah. we're down in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We were both down there. And I didn't know he he was going to be there. We were both getting uh, these degrees and the, the business community were giving this real black tie affair, real nice. Me and my wife, Pat, were sitting there and I'm knocking down a few because I don't have to speak that day. And he was just, he just got through swimming. And so he comes by and he says, man, what's going on? And I said, Mr. Ambassador, how you doing, man? Give me a hug. Man, I love you so much, blah, blah, blah. And he just started rattling off the story. He told me, he said he was in town. It wasn't Memphis, but it was getting close to Martin Luther King, the end of his journey. And they were at a hotel in uh, King's hotel room. And King called all his lieutenants together, and they were all seated around the table. There was Ralph Abernathy. There was Hosea Williams. There was Andy Young, Joseph Lowry, C.T. Vivian, all the paragons that I had met. And Martin Luther King says, fellas, we must be out of our mind to think that we can change this country. He says, but if we do change this country, no one seated around this table right now will live to see age 40. He said, that's the bad news. He said, the good news, just think of the untold opportunities that generations upon generations will have just because of the work that we are doing. Thanks. That is allegorical, brother. Powerful story that I don't let this next generation, this generation here or past generations ever forget. So that's one of the benefits, man. And I've had so many people speak in my class. Steve Harvey spoke in my class. Ayanna Van Zandt spoke in my class. Dikembe Mutombo spoke in my class. Tyrese Gibson spoke in my class, but arguably one of the people that who spoke in my class had a really profound impact on my students, and that was Usher's mother, hmm. singer Usher. Yeah, yeah, Je just saw him a couple months ago. Janetta Patton, hmm. blow you away. Powerhouse, powerhouse. And she told the story, she played basketball when she was in high school, so she was athletic and she knew about sports and this, that, and everything. But during the Q&A, one of my female students asked her, said, what's the toughest thing you've ever done in life? And she said, the toughest thing? She said, yeah, what was the toughest thing? And she said, arguably the toughest thing I've ever done in life is learn how to be the only black female in the room. Because she personally, every contract that Usher has ever signed, she negotiated. Hmm. She negotiated his first, his second contract, his recording contract, yeah. and the last contract that she negotiated as he's part owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Right. She negotiated that contract. Wow. Profound. Profound. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, and I, and I said, I said to her, I'm gonna get you to negotiate my teacher contract <laughs> next <laughs> year, man. Taking you off the lesson, saying, "Janetta, should I sign this?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Facts. No, that's that's it's great. I just heard Usher. I was at the Grant Cardone conference. It was earlier this year, obviously before the pandemic had hit. And yeah. so it was the Grant Cardone conference and Usher came and spoke there. And he mentioned his mom too. And he mentioned how yep. profound that she's been on his career. And, and that's, I think, the power again of mentorship. You don't necessarily need a dad, but you do have somebody that's in your corner right now that's always championing you. And if yep. they're from afar, like Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, you utilize that or sometimes they're up close for there's somebody out there that's wondering right now out of everything all the success that you've had all the people that you've met all the relationships that you've built if there's one thing that you could change to speed up or let's say accelerate your journey of your dream of where you are now what would that one thing be belief belief you would have believed belief belief the only reason I'm here right now, and I've had a lot of help, you know, my wife, my mother, my mother-in-law, my dad. Uh, one thing that my dad did do, he did a lot. He was my hero. But I shared this story several times. My father and my mother, they were both sticklers for education. And my older brother who made a transition, his transition a few years ago. He was two years older than me. And when we were uh, small in elementary school, we had to do our homework. And my dad had to check our homework before we go outside and play. And then the winter months is up in Jersey. By the time he got home, it was dark anyway. We couldn't go out. And we couldn't watch TV on school nights, Casanova. Mm. Couldn't watch TV on school nights. But my father made this one exception. There was this one show, came on 30 minutes, once a week. And he sat us down. We had to watch the show. And he quizzed us after the show. And the title of the show was Biography. 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 And the host, yeah. I'll never forget, was Mike Wallace and Casanova. Talking about belief, there were no black profiles. Right. I was watching profiles of Winston Churchill. I was watching a profile of Thomas Edison. I was watching a profile of Eleanor Roosevelt. And then I was watching a profile of uh, Charles Lindbergh. And then after that 30 minutes, my father set me and my brother down. Okay, what did you learn? What did you see? Okay, what was so special about them? Do you think you could do that? Son, do you have a dream? Do you have a goal? What is it that you want to do? And it was that type of thing. And really, right now, here I am, walking distance to age 70. My life has been biography. Mm. And when I talk about it, and even to this day, we, we are the only, we are the only racial, ethnic group that doesn't profile its Black creators, wealth creators. We still don't. You can go to a bookstore right now and you say, uh, can I go to the black business section? You might find one or two books. We still don't in 2020. Crazy. Come on, profile. Man. Don't you think untold generation might want to know? Give us a track to run on. Right. And I, did, I just said, hey, listen, this is what I was trained to do. And this was the best advice I got from one of my committee members at Northwestern when I was getting close to the door. He said, Dennis, he says, don't look at your dissertation as fulfilling one of your requirements for your degree. Look at your dissertation as your first book. And that's exactly what I did because I was looking at wealth and poverty among underdeveloped countries. And then after they gave me that, Dr. Kimbrough, I turned to my wife and I said, Pat, I know my first book. She says, what is it? He said, I don't want to study poverty. and I don't want to study countries. I just want to take wealth. I want to take African-Americans, put them together. I got to solve the Rubik's Cube. There's no Rubik's Cube at the time. And so she said, what will it take? 
And I said, well, it's going to be a, rather than quantitative, it's going to be a qualitative analysis, face-to-face -face interview. And she said, how long will it take? And I said, you give me 18 months and I'm through. 18 months was close to seven years. So there were some times that she got tired of it and she quit. There were some times I got tired of it and I quit. But thank God we didn't quit together. Right. Do Wow. Wow. Do you think right now that if you, your time was done, do you think that you would die fulfilled? Ooh. Oh, well, I've, I've had, yeah, I've had some life changing and fulfilling events. And just like Richard Branson, probably that I've, I have what is called the five great events of my life. And I think everybody should write down what are the five yeah. great events of your life? And uh, I got several of them, man. I just check them off. One, I, I got my degree and my mother hung around long enough. She came down with a virulent strain of cancer. When my first book was released, my mother never heard me speak, never heard mm -hmm. me speak. But now she hears me speak all the time. And my right. father, he died um, a year and a half before I completed my coursework. And after I was granted the, uh, the doctorate, went by his graveside and I said, Pop, we did it. Because he would always, my father would always say to me, he said, son, I, I miss my ship, but you'll catch your boat. You ride on time. Mm. And he would, he had, mm. my dad had so many idiosyncrasies. Every Sunday night, he would do the same thing. He would collect silver dollars and he would polish his silver dollars after he shined his shoes. And my father always shined his shoes every Sunday as if, a black man gonna call a, you know, excuse me, as white America gonna call a black man off from a job. That wasn't gonna happen, but he was prepared. If that phone never rang, Captain over, he was prepared. So stay ready so I don't gotta get ready. We were both both huge Yankee fans, and we came back from a Yankee game, didn't have a car back then. And we always caught the bus from uh, Bronx back to our house in Jersey. And the last two that got on the bus, and the bus was packed. So we got the last seat on the bus and my father was holding on to the strap. A woman came on behind us and she was right next to my father and she was holding on to the strap right outside of me. And so as the bus takes off, my father's holding on the strap. I'm in the last seat and the woman is standing, white woman standing next to him. And my father turns to the uh, woman and says, ma'am, would you like to sit down? Would you like a seat? And she's going, oh, yes. I've had a hard day today. I would surely sit down. So my father knees me at goes like this, get up. And so I got up and I held on to my father's waist like I was holding on to a tree trunk. And my dad says to the woman here, ma'am, you, you can sit down now. And my father, my father's holding on the strap. The woman says, oh, your son is so well-mannered, so well-behaved. And he says, thank you, ma'am. I didn't think anything of it until that Sunday later on, he's shining his shoes and shining his silver dollars that he collects. And he says to me, he says, boy, he says, the greatest compliment that a man could ever receive in life is for someone to say to him that his children are well-behaved, well-managed. And I didn't think anything of it. And he said to me, he said, boy, he said, you got to be prepared because times like this won't be this difficult on the Negro. Back then he called it the Negro. And he says, one day 
you're going to get married and you're going to raise a family, you got to promise me that you're going to raise your family the right way. Mm. Well, long story short, last summer before the pandemic, completely and totally unannounced, I got three daughters, all college educated, all advanced degrees, all homeowners, all married, all doing their thing. One of my son-in-laws married my oldest daughter. It was his birthday. So they all get together and they decide that they're going to kick it for one week. Listen to this, Casanova. One week in Barbados. Hmm. He's going to kick it, right? In July, birthday July. We all going to meet down there. Right. Have be a good big time. ballers, shot callers. We're going to be on the beach drinking big drinks. But they weren't going to take the children. The grandkids were going to stay with us while they're on the beach. Well, by the time my wife heard that they were going to throw her grandchildren under the bus while they're each kicking it. She got online. She got her grandkids the absolute best seats, best property on the island. Soon as they get off the plane, they put that, you know, that strap on the wrist. For one week, you get anything that you want. She said, no one is going to wave her grandkids off. Right, facts. So long story short, there we are on the beach, and I had, I call them my team, my grandkids, my team. My wife is in heaven because she got her entire family together. I'm a three-son-law, three-daughter, because very rarely now we have a moment like that when, when the girls were all in college, I could put my hand down and say, all right, I need to see you guys. You know, we're all meeting in Florida before they got married, and I'm taking attendance. In other words, I don't care what you're doing. You will be there, you know. But now I can't do that anymore. They're married doing things. When they all showed up, that was one of the five great events of my life. To think back, I said, Pat, we did it, man. We got them all educated. We got them all. (laughs) Love it. And that's a memory that. Give me my grandkids and y'all go do your thing. And that's a memory that everybody, regardless of the age, will probably always remember. Because just as you said, you get older and there's so many, but you can't get that one time back where everything is just innocent. As you get older, there becomes so much more intention. Why I got to do this? I don't want to be with them or whatever. But at that moment, it was all innocent. You're celebrating a special day. Grandma and grandpa forget to come. You know, so that's what they had. And I I completely and totally forgot about because they had one of the, uh, I guess, who's ever serving on the beach, take a picture. We all got together and they were taking pictures here on the blah, blah, blah. And I, I didn't think much of it and blah, blah, blah. And Casanova, that was in July. That Christmas, we were opening up Christmas gifts. And they, I had a big box. Someone gave me a big box. And I didn't know what it was. And I thought maybe it might have been gym equipment or something. But big box, and then a small box, and a small box, a small box. And then it was about this big. And I opened it up. And it was that picture framed, glossy. And there it is back there next mm. to one of my, one of my, right under one of my degrees, man. Love it. And I just said, oh my God, man. The five great events of your life. So getting all my daughters educated is one. Getting my terminal degree is two. That particular moment with my family is three. So I got two more, man. And the five great events. And that's what you've got to do. The longer that you can project yourself into future circumstances, the greater the chance for success. It's the short range goals that we dismiss. Monday, I'll start my diet. 
I'll stop smoking tomorrow. Okay, so today is Thursday. I'll tell you what, I'll start working out Sunday. Robert, the short term that we dismiss, but it's the long range goal. Before, if you look at my study, I got Napoleon Hill and blah, 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 but I'm enamored with those individuals who motivated Napoleon Hill. Mm. Napoleon Hill's mentor, didn't call him mentors at the time, but somebody who he emulated at the time, and I don't know how many books that you have of this gentleman, Orison Sweat Martin. I don't no, know. I, don't, I thought you were going to say Dale Carnegie. I didn't. Oh, no. Dale Carnegie was way past. But Orison Sweat Martin, talking about late 1800s, early 1900s, he wrote 110 books and pamphlets. Orison Sweat Martin. Of the 110, I got 65 of his books. How did you do that? Oh, his books were all outdated and everything. I would go to old bookstores and blah, and people knew that I was collecting these books. And they would say, hey, I just came upon one of the books you want to buy. But I would go ahead and this, that, and folks would give it to me. And and, and W. Clement Stone was a big collector of horse and sweat marks. So if he had duplicates, you know, he gave me one and this, that, and everything. But one of the crowning effects, again, Success Magazine knew that I was enamored with Orson Sweat Martin. He had two daughters, and he had one of his daughters was his last living survivor. And she lived in Long Island. And Success Magazine was really was a crowning moment for me. Success Magazine set up a phone interview that I had with her. Hmm. And I was asking her, I said, man, your father, man, what was it like? And she told me she was a young girl. She came home. He always had somebody of somebody of high report, noteworthy in his book line study that he was interviewing and this, that and everything. So that was that was a pretty exciting time. So I've had so, so many memorable moments and right up there. The last two. And I promise we're going to shut it down. When I received the H. Naylor Fitzhugh Award by the National Black MBA, which is emblematic of one of the top business school professors in the country. And then number two, Truett Cathy, before he died, once a year, he had his prayer breakfast, his national prayer breakfast. It wasn't a conference. It was just his national prayer breakfast, workshop, whatever, when he invited people from all walks of life to share their faith that they wouldn't naturally share. Yeah. And I was the keynote speaker uh, for this particular year. And I walked in there and I couldn't believe how many corporate CEOs who, like we said initially about more hour, hour and a half ago, who wouldn't share their faith. Right. But in this particular setting, share their faith, what their spiritual, like I said, there are 21 human values, achievement all the way down to wisdom. And sooner or later, you got to identify the two values that you look for in others and the two values that you absolutely positively fail to compromise. That is the only way, Casanova, you will ever attain level five leadership. And what is level five leadership? People follow you, not because you want them to follow you. They follow you because they want to follow you. And the only way they follow you, what you stand for. Wow. This has been such a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. I think that this is hands down been one of my favorite conversations. Cause well, you, you officially, you officially got your MBA now, bro. I did. I, you got we're not stopping there. Now I'm going to become that guy. The next time I'm in Atlanta, I'm running in there. I'm not leaving. 
Until he comes and signs my book. Like, brother, you're going to be waiting all night. Teaching the class right now. I already gave him time. No, this has been great. The one last thing that I would be remiss if I didn't get this out, I think it would always leave Mm -hmm. a void is there's somebody out there right now that's very inspired by you. They want to blaze a path just like you've done. And they want to make sure that their time on this planet is meaningful, but they have that little voice in their head. And that little voice says that they're not strong enough. They're not smart enough, or maybe they just don't have enough resources. What's the one thing that you would say to that person to get them to just take action? Oh, man. Number one, if that little voice is telling you that, tell that little voice to go to hell. All right. To take action, the words of Booker T. Washington say, start where you are with what you have, knowing that what you have is plenty enough. Mm. I don't care where it is. Start where you are with what you have. How old was John Newton, the slave owner, when he gets halfway across the Atlantic, finds himself in a, in a turbulent storm, falls on his knees, he gets this epiphany, goes to the captain of the ship, says, Captain, take this ship back to its original port and release this cargo. How old was when he did that? He was 24 years old. How old was Booker T. Washington? When he graduates and he gets the dream, go from Hampton and gets the dream from Tuskegee and go door to door in the South in the early 1900s and raises $6 million to do that. Hmm. He was 24 years old. Right. And I got to share this with you. I just I had a presentation at the uh, Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And as soon as you walk into, into the business program, into the uh, Tepper School of Business, which is palatial. Glass, clear, super clean. First thing is a picture of Andrew Carnegie standing right next to Booker T. Washington when he gave him a check for more than $300,000 at the turn of the century. What $300,000 was at the turn of the century to go ahead and launch Tuskegee. If you're weak, I can show you how to be strong. Mm. Casanova, if you're slow, I can show you how to become fast. But I don't have an anecdote for low self-esteem. That is something that you have got to do on your own. And the quickest way for you to raise your self-image is to praise your God. Because when you're praising your God, you're basically praising yourself. I love it. That's all we got. This has been, again, so fulfilling to me. I feel like definitely no matter what, if I stop my podcast tomorrow, I know that this episode right here will have a standing impact on many people's lives. So if there's that one episode that I got to tell you, if you are looking for wisdom and you're looking to boost your self-esteem and you're really looking for tactical advice, I think that this has been all of that. For anybody who wants to stay connected with you. I'm going to make sure that we have all of your links oh, yeah. you can in the show me. notes. I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on www.denniskimbrough.com. Okay. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. We'll definitely make sure we put that in there. Remember Dream Nation and the dream we trust. But just as he said, we must take action. Just starting with where you are right now and understanding that it's plenty enough, whatever you have, because if you do not take action, it will only merely be a fantasy. We'll catch you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you 
to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.